Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, event producer and originator of the Dickens Fair, Kevin Patterson. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominie Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. Snap Sessions is proud to announce our own Doug Nunn is publishing his book, Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus, just in time for the holidays. Just listen to these reviews. From the Snow Yorker. One of the ten coldest books of the year, a genuine tour de frost. From the North Pole Review of Books. An extraordinary look behind the scenes at just maybe the most benevolent operation on the whole planet. This book salutes the man and the crew who have brought us more joy than anyone else. In this time of pandemic and wannabe fascists, Santa's story needed to be told, and Frosty, Mrs. C, and their frozen crews do it with splendid vigor. From North Pole Variety. Excellently ecstatic. Xmas expose. And from renowned German critic Ralph Primer. Five out of five stars. Ho 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 becomes ha ha ha. Jolly Old Elf can be purchased at Amazon.com, at independent publisher Ingram Spark, and ordered at your local bookstore, like Mendocino's own Gallery Bookshop and Bookwinkles, online at gallerybookshop.com. Check Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, for further information. Jolly Old Elf, the art of Santa H. Claus makes a great gift. of human population in my lifetime. A roller coaster ride for our species. Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich didn't start out as a prophet of doom. His area of study focused on butterflies. But after visiting the crowded streets of Delhi, he had a realization. If we continue to let population 
grow. And if we continue to exploit the underdeveloped countries, if we continue to pollute the seas uh, with a wide variety of compounds and so on, it's very difficult for me to picture things holding together for more than another decade or so. The basic point is so simple. We have a finite planet with finite resources, and in such a system, you can't have infinite population growth. Ehrlich laid out his hypothesis in a slim volume called The Population Bomb. It was a call to action for many, including a student Ehrlich advised, Stuart Brand. There's too many people, and we'd like to see people have fewer children and better ones. The whole idea that people make more people who make more people until there's too many people, and by then it's too late, that's a very persuasive argument. It was a persuasive argument for me as well. In 1970, when I was a senior in high school, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, my civics teacher took us to a lecture by Paul Ehrlich at UC Berkeley. Ehrlich painted a frightening picture of overpopulation, overwhelming food supplies, and placing an escalating strain on the environment in the coming decades. He talked about taxing those who had extra children, adding temporary sterilants to the water supply and international triage programs for countries that couldn't control their populations. I left that lecture in a state of shock. I've searched for further perspective over time and listened intently to Swedish statistician and population analyst Hans Rosling. Here he speaks in the 2014 BBC-produced film Don't Panic! The Truth About Human Population. In the year 10,000 BC, when the first people were becoming farmers, then the archaeologists estimate that the world population was only 10 million. Imagine 10 million, that's like Sweden today. A world of only Swedes. <laughs> but then, as the millennia passed by, more farmers, food and people, and great empires could emerge. Egypt, China, India, and finally Europe. And population continued to grow, but very slowly. And I stop here at the year 1800, because 1800, that's when world population became one billion. Imagine all that time, the population growth was just with a tiny fraction of a percent through thousands of years. But here, 1800, with the Industrial Revolution, everything changed and population started to grow faster. In little more than 100 years, it reached 2 billion. And then, you know, when I was at school, it was 3 billion. And many people said, the planet cannot support more people. Even experts said that. But what happens was this, you know, we became 4 billion, 5 billion, 6 billion, 7 billion. Imagine, more than half of the world population have been added during my lifetime. Maybe we should be panicking. <laughs> I am almost the same age as Rosling, having been born in 1952. A long, long time ago. According to most estimates, the human population of planet Earth was approximately 2.5 billion people back in 1950, and it stands at somewhere around 7.8 billion people now, effectively tripling in my lifetime. It strikes me that the growth of the Homo sapiens population has been extraordinary, making us one of the most flourishing species in history. Sadly, we are also one of the most dangerous. Danger, Will Robinson! Danger! Danger! 
The Exploding Human Population was first written about by Thomas Malthus in his 1798 book, An Essay on the Principle of Population. He warned that an increase in a nation's food production improved the well-being of the population, but the improvement was temporary because it led to population growth. This in turn restored the original production level. In other words, humans had a propensity to utilize abundance for making babies. Baby, there's a lot of ways to make a baby. And if things are right for us, I was hoping maybe we could try a couple out, see what the fuss is all about. It's just the birds and the bees and the chimpanzees. And if things go right, maybe you and me. Rather than for maintaining a high standard of living, a phenomenon that has become known as the Malthusian trap. According to Malthus, Populations had a tendency to grow until the lower class suffered hardship, deprivation, and greater susceptibility to famine and disease, a process that is sometimes referred to as a Malthusian catastrophe. So, if humanity continued to grow... We were damned to a recurring cycle of boom and bust. Yet we are also a resourceful species. In fact, a contemporary of Paul Ehrlich's was working on potential solutions. In 1970, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to agricultural scientist Norman Borlaug for his work in the adoption of new high-yielding varieties of grain cereals especially dwarf wheat and rice, which raised yields immensely in various famine-prone countries like India and China. Although many of the methods used, such as chemical fertilizers, had negative impacts on the environment, production was raised enough to help lessen famine in many places. Ehrlich predicted that by the 1970s, India would be starving, quite to the contrary. The Green Revolution came to India with a big bang and a boom in such a rapid way that India has never looked back. Although an estimated 3 million children around the world still die of malnutrition every year, the Green Revolution's farming technology helped lessen rates of hunger in the developing world over the decades, even as the world's population skyrocketed. This green revolution took a significant dent out of the scariness of population growth, but there was still the question, how much would human population continue to increase and how many people could planet Earth ultimately support? If we keep ignoring this exponential population rise, nature will reduce human population for us. And what was fair to the other species on the planet, both flora and fauna? Right here on the flora. And how about you, Fauna? You wanna? Brand says that Ehrlich did succeed in raising awareness about important issues, such as the destructive effect population growth can have on the environment, even if some of his predictions didn't come to pass. If you ask me the question, are there things that I have written in the past that I wouldn't write today? The answer is certainly yes. I've expressed more certainty because I was trying to bring people to get something done. But his core message remains the same today. There are nearly 4 billion more people in the world, and they are consuming more resources than ever before. I do not think my language is too apocalyptic in the population bomb. My language would be even more apocalyptic today. 
The idea that every woman should have as many babies as she wants uh, is, to me, exactly the same kind of idea as everybody ought to be permitted to throw as much of their garbage into their neighbor's backyard as they want. Of course, more and more human beings means an increase in air and water pollution, excessive plastic production, and wanton overuse of fossil fuels. And this is all leading to extremely dangerous climate change which we are experiencing in increasingly nightmarish ways. Storm's coming. Storm's coming. There's a fucking storm coming, man! Storm's coming. Storm's coming. Storm's coming. It would seem that humanity is becoming more lethal to the planet every year. We are to planet Earth what lice, fleas, ticks, and the coronavirus are to us. So having less of us would be a godsend for the world. Yet population growth is indeed actually beginning to slow down. Let's take a look at demographic transitions over time as explained in this British documentary, Overpopulation, The Human Explosion Explained. Let's go back to the 18th century when the entire world, including Europe, was in the first stage of the demographic transition. By today's standards, Europe was worse off than a developing region, suffering from poor sanitation, poor diets and poor medicine. A lot of people were born, but lots of them died just as fast, so the population hardly grew. Women had between four and six children, but only two of them would reach adulthood. Then the Industrial Revolution happened in the UK and brought the greatest change in human living conditions since the Agricultural Revolution. People went from being peasants to workers. Manufactured goods were mass-produced and became widely available. The sciences flourished and advanced transportation, communication and medicine. The role of women in society shifted and created the conditions for their emancipation. Slowly, this economic progress not only formed a middle class, but also raised standards of living and healthcare for the poor working population. The second transition stage started. Better food supplies, hygiene and medicine meant people stopped dying all the time, especially so at a very young age. The result was a population explosion, doubling the UK's population between 1750 and 1850. The main reason families used to have lots of children was that only a few of them were likely to survive. Now that had changed, so the third stage of the transition was set in motion, fewer babies were conceived and population growth slowed down. Eventually, a balance emerged. Fewer people were dying and fewer children were born, so the death rate and birth rate became stable. Britain had reached the fourth stage of the demographic transition. This is exactly what happened in my own family over the past three generations. My mother's father was one of 16 children on a homestead in South Dakota. Her mother was one of seven, also from a homestead. My father's father was one of 11 on a farm in eastern Oregon, and my dad's mother was one of five. There was no birth control. Why won't anyone buy some condoms? And a need for child labor. Such has continued to be true across much of Asia, Africa, and South America to this day. Yet modern times have seen birth rates go down in industrialized countries. So my dad was an only child, and mom was one of three. And I was also one of three children growing up in post-war America. Modern economies don't require large families, and in fact, bigger families just plain cost more. Because it is too 
freaking expensive. Around 1960, the average woman was having about five kids, and now that number has shrunk to about 2.5 kids. The human population is likely to continue going up until the end of the 21st century, but the rate of increase will shrink. And some large countries will even see significant declines later this century. Hans Rosling explains how it is working with one family in Bangladesh. Here we are, back in Bangladesh. Let's find the reasons behind this historic and continuing shift from large to small families. Almost all girls in Muslim Bangladesh, like 15-year-old Tanjina, go to school today. The government now even pays families money to keep their daughters on at secondary level. At Tanjina school, boys are now outnumbered by girls. What type of family is this? A big family. Will they be short of food? Yes. You could hardly miss the point of this lesson. And what type of family is this? Small. And will they face any difficulties? No. Education is effective, and there are also new opportunities for Bangladeshi women. Despite continuing inequalities, there are more jobs, and Tanjina is aiming high. I love going to school. In my mother's day, they used to get married young. They had no chance to study. But now we can have big dreams of becoming a doctor or an engineer. More and more young women here are seeing how different things could be for them. I don't know how you got married at 17. I couldn't dream of getting married in two years' time. It's impossible. We didn't understand back then, but people know better now. At what age are you thinking of getting married? At 25. I'll finish my education and get a job. I'll become a doctor and get married after that. This change in perspective can lead to a potentially better future. According to environmental writer Elizabeth Colbert, family planning and girl empowerment are two of the most powerful tools to slow population growth and bring us towards an effective carbon mitigation policy. When Paul Hawken and his team investigated and ranked carbon reduction solutions for their drawdown project, they found that the combination of these two, call it the female empowerment package, carried the most potential to reduce greenhouse gases later this century over all other solutions. Together, they could prevent 120 gigatons of greenhouse gases by 2050, more than land-based and offshore wind power generation combined. That's a lot. So we might actually be slowing human population growth. If we can slow carbon production and our consumptive tendencies, we might be on the path toward a future in alignment with the ecology of our planet. But, according to a recent New York Times report, long slide looms for world population with sweeping ramifications, a sudden barrage of approaching dilemmas are coming into evidence. We now have the prospect of an aging population Must be getting too old for this shit. with fewer young people to support it. The strain of longer lives and low fertility, leading to fewer workers and more retirees, 
threatens to upend how societies are organized around the notion that a surplus of young people will drive economies and help pay for the old. Hey, I guess they're right. Senior citizens, although slow and dangerous behind the wheel, can still serve a purpose. It may also require a reconceptualization of family and nation. Imagine entire regions where everyone is 70 or older. French toast, please. Imagine governments laying out huge bonuses for immigrants and mothers with lots of children. Imagine a gig economy filled with grandparents and Super Bowl ads promoting procreation. It only takes one sperm to meet with an egg, which can lead to pregnancy. As I head toward my 70th birthday and look back on humanity's ups and downs in my lifetime, I see a roller coaster ride for our species. The population has already tripled since I was born, and our excesses of consumption have been extraordinary. We have consumed more fossil fuels, spewed more plastic, turned more land into cesspits, and wasted more resources than anyone could have imagined. What a mess. <laughs> My bad. Yet we are immensely creative and have within us the power to turn all this into a potential victory, if we can only learn to live in peace with our planet and with our fellow species, and maybe keep our zippers up, at least for the immediate future, and that may be a tall order for a short-sighted species. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Snap Sessions is here today with Kevin Patterson. Kevin is co-producer of Red Barn Productions. He and his family produced the annual Dickens Fair, which is called the Great Dickens Christmas Fair. And for many years, he and his parents produced the original Renaissance Pleasure Fairs around the country that were so important to the resurgence of the handcraft and the folk music world and to lots of people now living throughout Northern California. 
including in our own Mendocino County. We have lots of uh, Renaissance types out at various camps doing summer programs inspired by the original Renaissance Pleasure Fair. So it's great to have you here, Kevin. Well, it's very nice to be here with you. I know you've spent most of your life immersed in the world of Renaissance fairs and California history, and more recently, the Christmas classic, the Dickens Christmas Fair. Did you imagine these kind of things as a child? Did you ever expect to become an events producer? Well, when you're born into something like the Renaissance Fair, you don't imagine what your life is going to be. It just sort of happens all around you. The number of creative crazies that were just part of my family's life, my childhood home, coming and going, that was the office of the Renaissance Pleasure Fair in the Hollywood Hills in a storied place called Laurel Canyon. And my parents created kind of a, uh, a nexus point for a lot of creative uh, activity, a lot of wonderful uh, uh, backyard after-school programs. My mother taught drama in the backyard and my father taught art on the weekends to begin with. And so as a child of two years old, all of this was surrounding me. And the first Renaissance Fair happened when I was three. So you can kind of imagine that growing up in that, it was maybe, uh, how shall I say, I didn't have a chance of being anything other than an event producer when I grew up. So you did your terrible twos in a tunic, so to speak. I mean, there you were, young man Patterson, and your parents were teachers. I, I believe they're Phyllis and Ron Patterson. They were teachers, but they must have also been kind of completely into that time period, um, Shakespearean drama and a variety of other things. Tell us about your parents and how they got going with all this. Well, my mother was a school teacher and she came from Memphis, Tennessee, and she had her own TV show also when she was 19 years old called Phyllis's Playhouse. And she wrote it and directed it and starred in it. And they would push through a little set that she made out of a dollhouse. And then she'd tell stories for half an hour. And it was live to air. So there's no recording of it. But she was that kind of teenager. She was that kind of young lady. And then went on to teach uh, high school um, drama and, and history. And her favorite teacher was her speech teacher. And, and she just was so inspired by uh, people standing up on their feet and, and learning in an engaging and participatory way that she looked at education differently, I think. And, and when she came to California, my uh, father and her um, we're both very, very interested in getting young people to learn differently. And that's when the idea of living history came about with them. They, they wanted to engage young people in dressing up in the time period, learning the songs, learning the dances, uh, doing improvisational theater. And that was how th uh, history would come alive for them. And, and my mom essentially decided she was going to, uh, to hack a history class and, and come up with a whole new way to teach it. And she did. And then it uh, kind of exploded and became the Renaissance Fair movement. Nothing less than really across the country. That, of course, is a story in itself. But I guess you were three, so you can't tell us. But the early days of the Renaissance Fair must have been kind of backyardy or 
um, local park. Give us an idea of the first couple years. Think of it, we're going all the way back to 1485. Shakespeare's not around yet, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> right. Well, it, it was a, a, a park that was uh, essentially a summer camp uh, that uh, was donated by its owner for this little fundraiser that uh, my parents uh, got a KPFK radio station to do with them. So Pacifica Radio uh, benefited from the uh, very first fair. And the booths were all about four foot by four foot. They were made out of reclaimed lumber and donated fabrics from various places in Los Angeles. Even the LA Unified School District donated all of their old curtains that they had in a big pile in some warehouse. And they made all of the stage curtains out of it and uh, many banners. And they got a lot of volunteers to uh, get together and uh, produce all of the costumes and all of even the craft items and a lot of the foods that they were going to then uh, sell as a fundraiser throughout the course of this two weekend fair. And it was a success right out of the gate. I remember it. I was three years old. It was so impactful on my young eyes. And then the second one was also quite uh, rustic. And, and, and it was kind of like a, a hippie love-in. And by the third one, it became this other thing. By the third one, they figured out that they needed to do a focused, art-directed, living history experience so that people could really feel like they were in that particular time period with Shakespeare, with Queen Elizabeth, and with the peasantry, all of the craftspeople and all of the, the mountebanks, the, the players and the musicians, and the musicians that would have traveled uh, as gypsies throughout the countryside. So there was folk music from all different countries, as well as just... England and the continent. And it was really quite miraculous how much the Los Angeles arts community and Santa Barbara's arts community came together uh, to make this thing real. They all got it. They made leather jerkins and they wore feathers in their hats and garlands in their hair. And they were immediately able to realize this vision together. And it was like dreaming as a community. And I think that that is part of why it became such an overnight success. And so many people continued to uh, to come back year after year after year after year and make it better and better. So it really did uh, have only a couple of years where it was really very rustic. And then it sort of came to full flower very quickly and was that way for decades. I know it's hard to imagine that anyone has never been to a Renaissance fair. <laughs> it's been around now 58 years or something like that, 59, 1963, yeah, 58. Yes. For those who haven't been, give us an idea what it's like to walk in. I think there's kind of a geography to the Renaissance fair. So give us that overview and what it's like to visit a, Re a Renaissance fair. Well, thank you. It is really a country experience. It is like visiting a little English country village. It's on the earth. It's uh, surrounded by uh, gently rolling hills or forests. And you can uh, order an ale from a, a rustic stall and a turkey leg or freshly uh, sliced uh, piece of watermelon and, and sit back against a great big oak tree and just watch this Elizabethan world go by. And when you've finished your repast, you can wander down a winding lane and look at the colorfully decorated stalls filled with all the art that is made by hand that you can find throughout all of the various disciplines. So there's stained glass and, and there's clothing and there's uh, leather and there's um, pewter smithing and there's ceramics, so many wonderful ceramicists and knife makers. And all of these were 
uh, in the early years of the fair, very, very enthusiastic about recreating the particular trades and the techniques of those days. And it really did, as you mentioned at the beginning, encourage a resurgence in handcrafts throughout the, the country. There were many handcrafters that were off in various arts communities, mostly on the East Coast and, and in the hills of Santa Barbara uh, before the fair, but it was not mainstream. There were no crafts festivals in the streets of Santa Monica or of San Francisco or Santa Rosa. There were none. There was one that happened in Laguna Beach called the Sawdust Festival that happened to start around the same time as the Renaissance Fair. But these, these were really the, the precursors to what is now a handcraft movement throughout the United States. And the other thing that is so wonderful about what the fairs have done is it's given the people who come, the, the notion that somebody's never been to a Renaissance fair before is a wonderful question because sometimes they show up at a Renaissance fair and they almost never leave. <laughs> yeah. so we, we, we have stories of craftspeople who, who came to the fair with a briefcase and a three-piece suit and chucked it. And they figured out what they were going to do for a handcraft, and they made their new life happen because of their one-day experience at the Renaissance Fair, and they never went back to Wall Street. Are you in Novato now? Is that correct? Yes. I know there's other Renaissance pleasure fairs that have copied you that are around the country as well. Is that correct? Well, let me say, we don't do Renaissance fairs any longer. We only produce the Dickens Christmas Fair. The Renaissance fairs that we produced uh, uh, were from 1963 to 1998. And so for the last 23 years, we have been doing only the Dickens Christmas Fair. We've done some small Renaissance fairs that were very boutique, and that was um, uh, for a few years in the, in the first part of this century. But by and large, the, the original Renaissance fairs don't uh, exist any longer because those were uh, my parents' art direction. And when they got taken over by other people or they got copied in other states, they had very, very different art direction. And so they're uh, a different event. They're more fantasy. Yeah. They're not focused on the 16th century. They're sort of anything from gunpowder to steam. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it, it is um, uh, a lot of, um, of really wonderful reminiscence of that same essence of the, the ability to be improvisational and have a little village and have lots of crafts and lots of theater going on all around you. But it is uh, less focused. It is much more fantasy oriented these days at Renaissance fairs. And there's over 250 of them across the country. I think there's something like 20 in, in California alone of varying sizes. Yeah. Not currently. Uh, there may be one uh, actually opening up in a couple of weeks, which is sort of a legacy uh, of, of our fairs in Marin County at uh, uh, Casa de Fruta down in Hollister called the Northern California Renaissance Fair. If people are interested in going to find out what a Renaissance Fair is, and they're within earshot of my voice, uh, that is one that is opening up probably next week. And some of our dear friends uh, still do that one and uh, would yeah. love to see them. There's all kinds of stuff that came out of these fairs. One of the things that I really liked was uh, a lot of the ethnic music and throwback music. I had never heard of a hurdy-gurdy before I went to a Renaissance Fair. Tell us about some of the ethnic music, some of the historical music that comes out of the Renaissance Fairs, and then maybe you could also talk about the Living History Center as well. Yeah, that's a very good question, and I, I, uh, I have to say that many of the people that do live in the Mendocino area uh, that are uh, musicians 
who keep this uh, these various uh, uh, ethnic music traditions alive uh, from all over the world, really, uh, they did have their inspiration or their teacher's inspiration uh, from the gathering at the Renaissance Fair of a very particular group of musicians. Quite often, it, it does go back to a small collection of very inspired, knowledgeable uh, musicians. And there was a, a fellow by the name of Robert D. Thomas, who... Um, actually made his own bagpipes and played multiple instruments and inspired many people to learn how to do the music of any number of different countries and bring that to life. And, and he created a band uh, called the, the Golden Toad and it had uh, members uh, uh, Ernie and Deb Fishbach live uh, near to Mendocino who uh, are uh, still doing early music and Ernie is still repairing people's bagpipes. So there's, there's a lot of legacy there that way. And then there was Middle Eastern music, and there were uh, very traditional, uh, actually, Afghani dancers that came to the fair and, and, and taught others. And there's a legacy of multi-generations of, uh, of Middle Eastern music that was done with the tribal style and the tribal clothing, not Las Vegas. And also uh, uh, flamenco uh, music that was brought literally out of the woods of, uh, of Cloverdale and, and uh, places uh, around... Uh, in the Mendocino Hills, uh, uh, our friends who live there and came to the Renaissance Fair each year to play. So those are just some of the thoughts about that. But the uh, the Living History Center actually did keep alive the notion of these old traditions needing to be preserved and, and teaching people about them and, and uh, understanding that um, amplified music, even in the uh, age of rock and roll, was actually not the only cool thing that it was really the, the, actually the most sort of uh, goosebumps generating experience to sit in a quiet forest in a sylvan glade and listen to the uh, acoustic music coming from this group of inspired, wild-haired individuals who were playing music that literally made you feel as if your hay bales were lifting off the ground. And, and yeah. it just was uh, uh, such a fantastic experience. And I think it inspired a lot of people to to continue that on for, for many years. And there's a, a wonderful um, uh, organization uh, called Lark Camp. That is uh, the legacy of uh, the Lark in the Morning Music Store and Mickey Zeekley and his family. And that continues on as a nonprofit organization uh, called Lark and Lark Camp. And they are right there um, uh, when COVID allows uh, in your neck of the woods, as it were. Mickey Zeekley has been a longtime member of the community and actually uh, Hit and Run Theater, the group that Ken and I belonged to years ago, had an offspring band called the Irish Persons, mm-hmm. and they, we were a non-sexist, non-racist, politically progressive Irish folk singing group, and we invited Mickey in to do to play the Tin Whistle, which he did brilliantly. We've uh, accidentally linked arms, Kevin, in, in the past. So. Marvelous, yes, yes, yes. Ah, the Penny Whistle. Uh, well, the Living History Center I could talk about for a long time. It still continues. It still continues. We have a board of directors and we still teach living history theatrical technique to uh, the performers who do the Dickens Christmas Fair and at uh, state parks. There are a couple of state parks where we have uh, trained the docents how to do theatrical living history to add to their deep knowledge of uh, the local history. And 
uh, it's a wonderful thing to combine. And we helped to bring alive the uh, old Sacramento um, uh, History Museum and the Railroad Museum and uh, Jamestown, where they, they have the trains. And uh, we uh, are going to be starting a program like that potentially in this marvelous little town up in the Sierra foothills called Columbia, where there are no cars. And, and it's, it's just this sweet little 33 buildings that are perfectly preserved from the gold rush era. And they'd like us to help them uh, do some living history uh, work there as well. And to add to the, uh, the marvelous stuff that they already do. So the Living History Center continues and it started in 1968 in my backyard with my parents and, and I'm very proud of that. A lot of stuff generating at your house there, a lot of these ideas, which is pretty impressive. You had uh, these um, educator parents who uh, ended up pushing in the direction, starting the Renaissance Fair. Somebody who could handle the business of things was kind of necessary in those days. And when I looked at your CV, I saw a lot that amounted to business and management and economics, doing that both at university and then doing it in practice by producing these fairs over time. Mm -hmm. Just having done some small time production in terms of theater production, I know how much work that is and how you're the nuts and bolts guy who picks up the phone and makes things happen. Tell us about developing a business sense and applying it to Renaissance Fair management and Dickens Fair management. Well, the Dickens Christmas Fair is what my family and I do now. And it is a, a mom and pa operation. The, the Living History Center used to have uh, 60 staff members and I was co-producing that with my mother. And my father had been out of the business by the time I got involved in it. And then after the Living History Center divested itself of its Renaissance fairs and just became a little foundation and the fairs went the way of things, we started our own company to bring back the Dickens Christmas Fair. And my wife and I decided that with our coterie of very talented and capable co-managers, the people who know all of the things in all of the categories, we were able to weave together this wonderful tapestry of a seasonal business and be able to produce what is an extraordinarily, thank you for, for the compliment, but it, it is yeah. truly an extraordinarily complicated adventure and, uh, and setup to, to do this thing because it's 150,000 square foot stage, essentially. The entire Dickens Christmas Fair indoors at the Cow Palace has over 2,000 lights in the ceiling that we install. And we do that in three weeks and we build 75 buildings and create a miniature version of Victorian London inside these uh, exhibition halls that have been around since the 30s. So they're wonderfully kind of rustic and the ceilings aren't very high. They're only about 14 feet. So you really get the sense that it's nighttime in Charles Dickens, Victorian London. It's very theatrical and there's music everywhere you turn. And there's little shops with lights in them and all of the, the wonderful crafts that people have uh, been working all year to make. And this group of people, there's about 18 of us that have been doing it for 20 years, all come together every year to make this happen. And we learned how to do this together. And I am a puppet master, I suppose you can say. I know what strings to pull. I know what you know music to play or the Pied Piper, whatever analogy you want to make. It is not me that does it. It's not my wife that does it. It's uh, it's mostly our son because he's the production manager. He actually builds it. But truly, it is it is a team effort. And from the marketing to the uh, 
to the creation of, of, of seven uh, full-scale English pubs. Uh, we have a lot of wonderful expertise that comes together to make it happen. And I'd like to think that I uh, am able to, uh, to keep all of those uh, those balls in the air and, and and keep the experience fun too. The the idea of building these things is daunting, but it can also be tremendously satisfying. And and we've been doing the Dickens Fair now at the Cow Palace for 20 years, and it just gets better and better every year. And and I think uh, more and more fun to uh, to to actually uh, take part in as a participant, as a staff member, as uh, as an actor, uh, or as a vendor. And so. Yeah, it, it, it takes a village. And that's kind of a literal village. You're, you're an artist by inclination on one side, but did you study at USC or UCLA? Did you study business admin or something like that as well? My, my father has the UCLA uh, degree. He's got an MA uh, in, in visual arts from UCLA. Uh, my own experience is uh, actually through uh, Pepperdine uh, as, a, as, a, as a business uh, management student. And then in the school of uh, production, uh, growing up in doing the fairs, I have done every single job that there is to be done. When I was seven years old, I was rolling quarters from the box office, and by the time <laughs> I was sixteen years old, I was planing ale stand counters with a uh, with a belt sander and riding horse guard, doing fire patrol on the weekends. And it really didn't occur to me that there was. Uh, uh, any other way for me to live than to just do whatever needed to be done at, at the fair. And then ultimately, uh, I got handed the reins. That's an interesting thing because uh, coming from small-time theater, I've also had the experience of painting props, uh, putting stuff together backstage, moving big boxes around, etc., setting up the chairs in the theater and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then also, the standing joke is, if you're in a theater company and you know how to balance a checkbook, don't say anything because you'll become the producer. So there is that right. aspect of it. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's fascinating how you put it all together that way. And I have a lot of respect for production. I know people tease producers about, you know, ah, that damn producer you mentioned puppet master in a good way i think yeah. who would make these shows happen if it weren't for the producer i ask you but i also wanted to mention i saw on your cv that you also got into horsemanship for a while did that come out of learning about uh, horses in the renaissance fairs well yes the renaissance fairs inspired that i had a job as a security guard and we had a mounted patrol unit and i was uh, one of the guys and so uh, that became my uh, horsemanship training to begin with. And then my mother said to me, I want to have a, uh, a community horse show and a tournament a competition where we can invite people in the immediate surrounding area of the fair and they can come on their horses and, and uh, enjoy being in these um, events and, and win craft items. And so she asked me to organize that. And that was a whole other set of tasks that I learned how to do because of that uh, request by my mother. And so I spent several years managing this uh, ever-growing horse show. And ultimately, we added knights in armor and turned it into a full-scale, full-contact joust. I'll be darned. Did you ever get knocked off a horse by a lance or anything? Uh, no, I, I had the good sense to only be the uh, uh, the official on the horse on horseback and uh, and lower the uh, the flag as it were when it was time to to commence the the charge. And the idea that the horse tournament was uh, the entree to the Renaissance Fair 
for the, the the local community was was really special. My mom recognized the fact that uh, here was this thing that was uh, uh, very counterculture, and the Renaissance Fair was surrounded by uh, a, a very rural community that was uh, a little more conservative than that. And so she was uh, very brilliant in asking me to go out to that community and invite them to come to the fair and find out that actually we were doing Shakespeare. We were okay. We just had long hair. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that tells us a lot. You know, you you combine the horse sense in business and the horse sense in uh, horsemanship as well. So that's great. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about the Dickens Christmas Fair. I want to give them a little bit more of a sense uh, because this will be a holiday show this year, our uh, December show. Yeah. And uh, I know people could go to the Dickens Fair who are listening to this. I went to a Dickens Fair about eight years ago. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Yes. I also used it as a twofer in the sense that I got some Christmas presents there and some Christmas paper, you know, wrapping paper, variety of things. So there is that part of it where as you make the rounds, it's at the Cow Palace. Give us a little bit of the, you know, nuts and bolts, when it starts and et cetera. Well, first I have to say that this year, Doug, we are doing a version of the Dickens Fair. We are not doing the whole Dickens Fair because it is an indoor event and it is a large indoor event and those are not safe to produce right now. Right. So we are doing it this year as a drive-through event. People are going to stay in their cars. They are going to drive around the grounds of the Cow Palace, which will be decorated and filled with some of the best food booths at the fair. The food at the Dickens Christmas Fair is really special. The traditional foods, they're all handmade. So there's there's some of the best fish and chips outside of London. There's fantastic bangers and mash with mushy peas. Yum. There's meat pies. There's there's delicious uh, Greek food and you know roasted cinnamon almonds and fresh baked uh, scones and and a, uh, a full English tea in a box. So people can come into the Cow Palace grounds. Oh man. Kevin, you're 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 flooring me here. I haven't eaten yes. yet. This is brutal. Well, Please well, continue. And, and, and the <laughs> regular visitors to the Dickens Christmas Fair actually come into the front gate of the fair on a given morning and run through the entire fair to get to the back of the fair to make their reservation for tea. So there is wow. there is that kind of loyalty and that kind of uh, uh, longing, and we want to uh, to fulfill some of that. So that's why we're doing drive through Dickens. We didn't do it last year. We did an online uh, set of uh, of things where we gave people many of the recipes so that they could do their own and they could watch some videos of of caroling and and of uh, uh, how to make certain crafts. But that'll continue online. The live opportunity to have your fish and chips or your roasted cinnamon almonds or your tea in a box is going to happen for three weekends at the Cow Palace beginning the first weekend in December. And that is going to uh, be uh, uh, augmented by some of the wonderful entertainments at the fair with high kicking can-can dancers and marvelous uh, ale song drinking uh, gentlemen and all of the uh, the musical performers and, and many of the uh, bobbies and the, the wandering characters right out of the books of Charles Dickens. So the story of A Christmas Carol comes to life uh, around you, and there will be lots of vignettes. Uh, it won't be a nativity scene. It will be Ebenezer Scrooge having his comeuppance. <laughs> and so that's going to be a, a lot of fun. Very different than the the, the full Dickens Christmas Fair, which if, if people have never been, uh, they uh, really need to uh, 
uh, go to the website, dickensfair.com, a little uh, shameless plug there, but also it's a resource to see what this thing is because there's no other event like it. Uh, I have said there's 250 Renaissance fairs around the country. It's fairly easy to produce a Renaissance fair. It is extraordinarily difficult to produce a Dickens Christmas fair for the reasons I mentioned earlier technically. And so it is still the only one of its kind in the world. And it happens in our backyard here in, in uh, San Francisco, Daly City. Yeah. I highly but, recommend it. We just had to postpone a, an improv show here, uh, our hit and run theater. So I get, you know, like, oh man, indoor show right now, etc. So here you are trying to plan from four months out. So that is, of course, is a production nightmare. And uh, that's tough. But I highly recommend for people to go see, this sounds like a very good alternative, the drive-through. But when yeah. they can, hopefully next year, the plague is a distant memory. And we're yes. all going back and enjoying the Dickens Fair and the Cow Palace, walking around from booth to booth, etc. Yeah, and we'll let them we'll let them know what we plan uh, as uh, as time goes along. Here, we're very much expecting that the uh, the full Dickens Christmas Fair will be happening in 2022. But for 2021, we'll be doing this marvelous drive-through hybrid version, and people can find out about it at DickensFair.com. This next question is a fun one, and. Um, you and I went back and forth a little email in this one. Now, after 30-some years doing the Renaissance Fairs oh. and then around 20-some years doing the Dickens Christmas Fair, you must have some production disasters you might want to share with us, uh, sort of uh, worst, worst moments, but also your proudest and most magnificent moments. Just let yourself run free here for a few moments. Oh, well, thank you. I, I have no problem running free, as you've noticed. I'm, uh, I'm happy to share my enthusiasm and love for this uh, uh, life, really, that I have been fortunate to have uh, in this creative milieu that uh, was founded by my parents and is now continued by my wife and my sons and I. And I, I have to start by saying I think that is my proudest moment, is the uh, uh, the daily ability to work with my 34-year-old son as my co-producer. He's a, a, a brilliant production manager and designer and uh, uh, jack-of-all-trades, as I have uh, had to be throughout my career. So seeing him take that on and be passionate about it and enjoy doing it and understand that he's a third-generation a creative producer is, uh, uh, is is truly a joy. On the flip side, there there certainly have been some uh, some heroic moments for our uh, little village. There was a morning at the Renaissance Fair uh, back in the early '90s when uh, somebody backed over a fire hydrant about three hours before the fair was to open. And it took about an hour and a half before they could figure out how to shut off the damn thing. And so it created a lake. The entire front of the fair with about 60 booths was <laughs> a small lake. And what we were able to do in the space of an hour and a half after the water was shut off was kind of miraculous. Uh, I was um, a part of the production team then, and we, we backed up the three water trucks that we had. And we ran the pumps and started siphoning off the water. And then we had bucket brigades. And hundreds of people from inside the village were throwing the water up onto the hillsides to get it out of the middle of the, the thing. And, of course, when it finally got down to where it was just this slushy 
puddle, uh, this giant puddle, and the audience was being held at the front gate. I think we were closed. I mean, we were supposed to open at uh, at, at 10 a.m., and uh, it was about uh, 10.30 by the time we, we managed to open the gate. And as the opening parade came by with the audience members behind it, there was about 20 of us with broken hay bales backing our way up the, the, the walkway to spread straw on, under people's feet as they were setting their feet down. And that was that was a, a, a production uh, bit of heroism that we uh, uh, all shared in. And there, there's, there's marvelous photos of that. Uh, in Los Angeles, my my mother, bless her heart, had to to deal with the fact that there were no large scale events that took place out in pastoral settings in the hills of uh, the Santa Monica Mountains. Every event happened on asphalt at the LA County Fairgrounds or at the the Pomona Fairgrounds or the, at Universal Studios. They, there were no uh, rural festivals in you know uh, under the oak trees, and so the LA County Health Department would come out and they'd scratch their heads and they'd try to figure out how the hell they could approve these kitchens out in the middle of a of a cattle pasture. And my my mother was absolutely brilliant at being able to to talk them into it. And and yet she had this one health inspector who had done a little bit of historical research and he decided that the bubonic plague was carried by um, ground squirrels in, in medieval England. And well, there were ground squirrels in the hills of the Santa Monica Mountains. And so he was not going to approve our health permit because he was afraid of bubonic plague being spread. And we had to get uh, uh, a research uh, uh, facility at, at UCLA or, or some hospital local, locally to uh, to convince him that uh, the bubonic plague was not a concern yeah. in, in L.A. County. It was momentarily getting too authentic in a way. <laughs> right, you know? yeah. And, and at the, the Dickens Christmas Fair now, we, we, we don't have production uh, problems. We just, we've designed them out, Doug. We, we, mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we really enjoy just having a, a good time and making everything work well. And uh, we, we do it with good humor and, 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 and lots of fun. That, that is our... Uh, our way of keeping it all uh, uh, fresh and silly. That That is wonderful. It's one of those things where I'm sure you could probably do a whole show on great uh, production, screw-ups, etc., over time with both of these fairs. I kind of wondered, are you literally in the office all year round? We are. There, there's just the three of us that work year-round, and then when it gets to about four months before the event, then we start to uh, bring in some of the seasonal team and uh, and begin the marketing and the planning and so forth. And then by the time we get to uh, two months out, uh, it is all hands on deck. And, and we're very fortunate that, as I mentioned earlier, there's 18 of us on the, the core team and probably 16 of those have been around for a uh, uh, dozen or more years. So it, it's really a, a, a family uh, effort and, and, a, and a wonderful uh, coming together seasonally every year to make this beautiful thing that, that makes so many people happy. Um, I know there's some Renaissance fairs that are done in different countries at this point. Did you folks mm. have a license originally, or was this one of those things that um, developed on their own? And con- did they consult you, anything like that? 
Well, there were some consulting, uh, I suppose, here and there. But no, really, the, the Renaissance pleasure fairs that my parents invented in the 1960s were the first uh, such uh, festivals uh, in 400 years. There, there, there hadn't been uh, country fairs like that because, you know, they, they grew with the age of industrialization and iron rides and cotton candy and all of those things. That, that is what, what those fairs became, right? And that's what we call a county fair now. So they took it back 400 years, and that concept... They attempted to get it uh, licensed or, or otherwise uh, have some sort of copyright on it. And really, they were told that it's just too generic of a concept, and so they didn't get a copyright for it. Uh, people throughout the country decided that they wanted to have a Renaissance Fair in Tennessee or in Florida or in Minnesota or Michigan or Kansas City. Texas, and sure enough, there are now fairs that have been there for 30 or 40 years in those states, and they are significant institutions in their own right. And we're we're just proud that there's a, a legacy there that has brought so many people into the arts, because that's really, at, at the end of the day, the, the, the very best thing about the fairs is the way that it engages so many people to be hands-on in the arts, and then it's a lot of fun. What, what do you see as a future for um, these kind of productions, the uh, Dickens Christmas Fair, or, you know, what do you, these kind of fairs? Well, the Renaissance Fair as an industry is, uh, it, you know, prior to COVID is very healthy and continues to grow. And, and, and the fairs uh, in many of these uh, uh, states that I mentioned are uh, are thriving and, and seeing their attendance uh, remain steady or, or slightly increasing every year. So that's just what it is. I think it, it, it filled a need and it became a thing. And you see it in popular movies and in television shows. And uh, yeah. it is part of American culture now. The Dickens Christmas Fair, we love it. We love doing it. It is a, a wonderful livelihood uh, that we've been able to uh, uh, to make happen uh, with our small production company. We like the scale of it. We're not interested in trying to become some large nationwide concern. And so we hope to be able to pass it on to the next generation and have it happen for another 38 years. Would you like to see a recreation of, say, big events in California history, a gold rush camp or or whatever? I mean, is that also something you aspire to? Well, as a matter of fact, it is something we have done. We, we produced uh, rail fare for uh, the Sacramento um, History Museum and the Railroad Museum of the of California State Parks. And that had 100,000 people at it. And we are uh, very interested in bringing to life early California history, both educationally and as uh, a festival, uh, perhaps a new one in the future. And we're working with, uh, uh, with state parks and uh, small towns throughout California to uh, help them to be able to uh, interpret and bring to life the, uh, the wonderful history of California. And we will be... Uh, uh, perhaps doing a festival at one or two of those locations in the future. Well, that sounds great. I want to thank you very much, uh, Kevin Patterson, for sharing a life well spent, uh, making people happy, and uh, taking people into their imaginations, going back in time to the Renaissance or to 19th century Victorian London, and in recently California moments, and making people happy and, and give, giving them a chance to learn in a participatory way. I think we couldn't have a better person on for our holiday show. We want to thank you, Kevin Patterson, for being with Snap Sessions. Well, thank you, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to our artist of the show, Kevin Patterson. 
Our production team includes Techmeister Marshall Brown, Jack of All Trades Ken Kraus, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.